Welcome back to the show, everybody. I hope you're ready for another great episode. I am your host, Juan Rodriguez. This is The Lodges Podcast, a podcast where we interview and host pro esports players, streamers, business professionals, and others who are working in the industry and space. And this is episode 31 today. We had the opportunity to sit down and chat with Chris Smith, who is the founder of Big Esports, which is a gaming and esports consulting firm and agency located in Australia. And I was really excited to have Chris on. I know a lot of people that are going to be tuning in are very familiar with Chris, especially if you're coming from LinkedIn. But a little bit of background, he's been in the space for about 10 years, and he's seen a lot of different aspects of the industry. So, for example, he's been a player, he's been a commentator, he's been a tournament organizer, he now sits on the business side. So he brings a lot of experience and knowledge to the show today. We talk about some of those different roles as well as what he's doing right now at Big Esports. And some of those topics include, you know, how they're working with brands and influencers and influencer campaigns and the PR side of things right now for streamers and pro esports players. So there's a lot of interesting conversation that we have. We also touch on a little bit at the end about his podcast, the Big Esports Podcast. So a really great episode was blessed to finally get the chance to just sit down and chat with him. I think that you guys will enjoy it. And so with that being said, I won't hold it on any longer. This is the Lodges podcast up next. I hope you all enjoy it. Welcome everybody. We are back for another episode this week. Hope everyone is doing well. Thank you guys for checking in again. Today we have a guest that I think a lot of people are going to be familiar with, especially our LinkedIn crew that tunes into the podcast, but very happy to have Chris Smith, founder of Big Esports, which is a gaming and esports consulting firm and agency, or maybe some of these that don't know him, but Chris, like I was telling you, pumped to have you on and, and to jump into it with you. Hey, hey, good to be here. Definitely, definitely. Uh, so Chris, like like I was kind of saying, I want to, I know you've done a lot of different things and and you've been in the space for a little while now. Um, But really, I thought before we jump into some of your specific roles, it'd just be nice to if you just give us maybe for some of those people that aren't aware of what you're doing over at Big Esports, just, you know, let us know where you were born and raised, you know, what was your upbringing like, what were some of your interests growing up and and just a little bit of background? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I guess for me, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people like to start their story as you know, I was born at a very young age and go over the first game we played. But you know, I'm sure you and most people listening to this podcast, we're all, we're all gamers, so we understand what it was like. You know, kind of yeah. getting our first game on board and and playing that as we grow up. But for me, my my passion really started um, probably around World, World of Warcraft. I think that pretty much every gamer has uh, quote unquote done their time in World of Warcraft. They've either played it and stuck with it for many many years, or are still going on, or had a bit of a flash in the pan. But we've all tried it and. For me, you know, I transitioned into first-person shooter games off the back of that because I wanted something that I could just join and leave when I felt like it and when I needed to rather than being stuck into an hour-and-a-half dungeons and such. And that really kicked off my competitive spirit, I guess. So I, I started in a game called Battlefield 2, um, just kind of as, as any kid does, you know, camping on a roof as a sniper with a claymore and thinking I'm awesome. Um <laughs> becoming you know a bit a bit better over that game over time and thinking how, how can I test myself against other people how can I become a better player and also prove to people that I'm better not just through a public match so I kind of stumbled my way into gaming and esports like most people do and kind of kicked off my passion really and 
you know, for me, I would say I'm, I'm a bit of a serial generalist, I guess. I've, I've sat on what I like to say is all six sides of the fence when it comes to esports. And, you know, if you were to run a professional esports tournament, I've been there in, in almost every capacity. You know, I spent my time as a semi-professional player in Counter-Strike, um, you know, in top four or top six team in Australia, depending on who you ask. Um, I was a commentator for a period of time. I commentated and ran Australia's largest prize pool, Counter-Strike tournament back in 2010 which was $30,000 15k cash 15k prizes um, I was a journalist for a year and a half I've worked a combined six years for two different companies Corsair and Thermaltake doing their you know PR marketing social media community you know trade shows events um, reviews and all that kind of jazz too and I've you know also been a player manager managed one of Australia's first professional Starcraft 2 players a kind of team manager during my time and you know run probably 20 plus community tournaments, some of which I ran while I played, some of which I ran while I commentated in. So, you know, I've kind of have a, you know, jack of all trades, I guess you could say. And for me throughout that whole period of time, it was me finding my personal fit in the industry. You know, I had, and I've talked about this when I used to do a lot of mentoring in the past, that I think it's important to have goals, um, but it's also as equally important, I think, in a new industry like this to be okay with changing your goals and not just being set on a goal just because you said or just because you posted on Instagram. You have to keep it. So, you know, my goals have wildly changed where at one stage I wanted to be the best Counter-Strike player in the world or at least in the best team. You know, I wanted to be the most accomplished and, and um, you know, most well-known esports commentator in the world. I wanted to be a massive um, tournament operations provider. I wanted to be the head of global marketing for a big computer components company. I wanted to be one of the most well-known journalists in the world that got to go on all the cool, you know, press junkets and, you know, get thrown in a Ferrari with a Corsair logo on the front like I did when I was on the <laughs> PR side for, for people uh, and that and that kind of stuff too. But now I realise that, you know, I just kind of want to work on the industry and, and the bit of the, you know, the lovey-dovey part that some people talk about, which I'll state too, is that I want to help to give people an opportunity that I never had was, you know, kind of growing up in the industry. When I was a semi-professional player, I was playing against a team called Vox Eminor. They were number one, clearly, at that time, and they beat us 2-0 in our last tournament, or 0-2. Um, and those guys went on to become Renegades, who are now 100 Thieves, and, you know, just placed in the top six in the Intel Extreme Masters and, and knocked out, you know, some of the best teams in the world, like Vitality, like Vitality and they've beaten Astralis, I believe, recently, and, you know, FaZe Clan, et cetera, et cetera, too. So for me, it's... You know, how can I provide people with those opportunities? And coming from Australia, I think I have a a great grasp on the grassroots here. The grassroots scene, you know, has been very strong in the past and continues to be strong. And I'm trying to take a lot of that learnings around the world. You know, people often ask me, you know, do you do work around the world or just in Australia? And, you know, the answer is definitely around the world. And for me, I think there's a lot of learnings that I can bring from here. Um, and, hey, it's always great to be paid in USD because we're in Australia and our dollar's like a dollar. Dollar thirty-four, I think, something like that. Yeah, it's always nice when the currency rate is the exchange is in your favor. So yeah, exactly. No, that's awesome. So you've clearly gotten your feet wet, really, in in almost every angle. I feel like that you could of the industry, which I can only imagine helps provide you a lot of context and a lot of great perspectives. Getting to sit on different sides of the table. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like to think. Yeah, I guess, like I said before, I like to think I'm a bit of a serial generalist, but can can give a bit of a lens, like depending on which lens I put on, you know, around multiple different things. And, you know, one thing I didn't mention is a really big passion of mine and has been for a while is helping people make money in underserved industries. You know, there are a lot of um, a lot of influencers out there who, you know, might have 100,000 
subscribers, but are really making no money at all off YouTube. You know, how can they how can they make proper money? There are, you know, a lot of other content creators, say Ninja, who says, you know, I take a couple of days off streaming and I, I lose like tens of thousands of dollars. So mm-hmm. what are some ways you can fix that? And in the past for me, it's it's been even simply working with computer modders, people who cut up and do cool things to cases who were doing, you know, 10, 20, 30 to 100 plus hours on a project for a multi-billion dollar company like NVIDIA or ASUS or Intel and being paid simply in equipment that half the time it's it's half damaged because they're cutting it up. So working with those guys to say, hey, look, you know, I understand this is a passion for you, but maybe you can make money out of it too. Um, and, yeah. you know, helping those people understand how to talk to sponsors, see seeing them in emails, running projects through my Facebook page, but I give them 50% of the incomings of the money and provide them with an advertising budget, teach them how to do Facebook ads. There were a bunch of them I taught how to get an ABN, which is Australian business number. You know, I gave them a template for invoicing, told them how to do that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Really trying to, you know, pull these guys up. And for me, the advantage is that, you know, I've got those friends for life now. And whenever I need to call on them, you know, while PC modding isn't a big part at all of my life anymore, you know, those I still have those friends. And when I do need something to happen, you know, it's pretty easy to call on those guys because I know I've got their back. Yeah. And it's interesting because I actually later on when we get to the PR side of things, I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, whether there are times where some people do get a little bit underpaid or, or kind of where the context of that is at, because I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So definitely want to circle back on that conversation here in a little bit. I wanted to go a little bit deeper on to kind of walk through your career now. That's a great overall context. I want to drive a little bit deeper on your time as a player to start with and then kind of shift to your time as a commentator and big esports. But mm-hmm. as your time as a player, just to circle back to that, what was the first game that you played semi professionally? What team were you with? And how did you? land that that gig you know how did you get in with that team or, or what were you doing at the time mm-hmm. yeah so it's a, it's always a bit um it's always a bit hazy back in the day and i had a i had a talk with someone on linkedin about this because they were like hey i used to play top level games before anything was even called pro or semi-pro mm-hmm. you know when the best team in australia was simply just the best team because they've been playing for a long time and they might be the top of say the game arena ladders which used to exist here in australia which is a completely open ladder but, you know, if you're at the top, there's no finals. It just goes forever. Um, and there's nothing that you win for being the top. But, you know, I guess the first team that I joined that I really tried hard and, and we placed quite highly quite often was a team called Team Renegade. Um, <clears throat> and back in those days, you had really cool, um, really cool looking clan tags, which is, hey, maybe something that'll come back, which is like a, you know, a lowercase T, a capital R, one of those long vertical lines, like that's above enter on a keyboard and then a full stop. Um, and you had a lot of those kind of things back in the day. And for us, we were infantry specialists in Battlefield 2. So Battlefield 2 is a game that was, you know, previously played 16v16 is the main competitive angle. We preferred the 10v10 format, which which kind of went ahead because, you know, imagine how hard it is in those days without any professionalism to get a 16v16 match happening. You know, we used yeah. to have, like, a, it was it's kind of like the NFL in the fact that, you know, a lot of teams would have a, a quote-unquote starting roster of 50 people and you'd post on the forum and say, hey, guys, we've got this match two weeks out. Who can make it? And you'd try to get about 25 people on because, you know, a bunch of them wouldn't rock up. 
for whatever reason. So, you know, we were infantry specialists in Battlefield 2. We were, um, I guess, part of the new breed. You know, the old breed of Battlefield 2 guys loved, you know, the tanks and the vehicles, the jets, the, the bombers, the fighters, the helicopters, all the cool stuff you could do. Whereas the new breed and people like myself and my team, we just like the infantry. We like to get in there, get dirty. Um, Battlefield 2 was a game which was more about body control and movement of your hero or your character or your model than it was about aiming. And that was something that really was great to me. It's more about not getting hit than actually hitting the enemy, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that was, that was great. I, I love playing that game. You get a sore pinky from smashing Z, which was prone in control, which was crouch all the time. But, you know, it was, <laughs> it was a real lot of fun. Um, and that really, you know, kickstarted myself into the industry. And, you know, we were a team that had some ups and downs. And unfortunately for me, you know, I, I kind of came from World of Warcraft, so I didn't have that base of, of FPS play. Mm-hmm. Um but also, you know, I came a little bit late in the piece. So, you know, I like to say that my team was was a top four or top six when the game was truly competitive. But, you know, we were number one during the death throes of the game. But that's just simply because so many people had quit the game. You know, we were kind of number one by default. And I was playing with guys I've never even heard of before. And we, you know, the last tournament we won in, you know, we won by a massive margin. If it was CSGO, it would have been like a 16-0 basically without even trying with, with kids I've never even heard of before. But, you know, it was a fantastic game to play in. You know, I kind of kickstarted myself into the FPS industry and transitioned from that into a game called Battlefield Bad Company 2, which has a lot of mixed reviews, but to yeah. be frank, was a terrible, um, was it was an absolutely atrocious competitive title. Even the fact that it didn't have a, a spectator mode. So if a commentator wanted to commentate it, they'd have to spawn as a sniper and sit on a cliff and just pray that people wouldn't kill them. Um, but it, it was a Battlefield game with no prone. Medics had light machine guns. And you could blow up all of the walls and such, which is fantastic for an environment for casual play, but not good for competitive play whatsoever. Because competitive play in, you know, I've said this in so much content before, in my opinion, needs a limited and controlled amount of randomness. And when you can blow up a whole building, um, you know, that just creates a little bit too much, a little bit too much craziness. And, you know, we used to have that on Bad Company too. One of my, um, one of our strategies in, there was two modes, 8v8 and 4v4. One of our strategies in 4v4 was literally me sitting way back on this map with a, with a teammate and I was an assault class, which means I had an underslung um, grenade launcher on my, on my rifle. And literally the whole game, I would be blowing up buildings and the enemy <laughs> would spawn. And the reason was that the enemy would spawn and have to basically run through no man's land when all the buildings were destroyed and they could never possibly win the game. That's um, your strategy. So, yeah. But you know, an unfortunate strategy. It's like, I just right. really wish that didn't exist <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> but you know, that, that transitioned me across into Counter-Strike Source. And that's when my real, as you could say, my real passion for, for esports came from. And, you know, going from Counter-Strike Source and kind of working my ways up there, doing nothing notable at all, you know, joining a team which which I saw um, a lot of uh, a lot of potential in, a team called 3H after a while, which actually stood for Hungry Hungry Hippos, but we never told anyone what it meant. Um, and, you know, found, that I found in a deathmatch server and I found this guy who was grinding there every single day. And I said, Yin, which was his name, you know, can I add you on Steam? I want to chat. And I said... Look, mate, I'm, I'm with the team right now. I don't think they're going. You know, a lot of places, they're like most amateur to main teams who don't really have cohesion. They argue a lot internally and they don't have that drive, but I think you do. Um, and he said, sure. So I actually went down a division to join those guys. Copped a lot of flack from my previous team. But the next season, I beat my previous team in the semifinals in overtime. And I think I, I popped a 19 bomb, which means I got 19 kills in that match as well, which is a big feat for me because I wasn't a main, a main fragger, as they call it, by any point um and then we launched direct into csgo and i guess with csgo we're able to out nerd everyone else there was a 
a time in Australian esports back then when people would brag about doing aim practice only and not watching demos and replays. They'd brag about, um, you know, not doing strategy and just running around and headshotting people. And that does work up to a certain point because in Counter-Strike, if you can shoot them first, you win. Um, but, you know, with our team, a lot of our guys were, were young and hungry. We only had one experienced guy who's, you know, probably played in top six teams at best at a few national tournaments. And, um, you know, we're able to lean on his experience and us being quite honestly, complete nerds about the game and having a fundamental understanding, I think, of the game much, much better. Like you could say 150% better than everyone else. So that was able to get us up to the top four, top six. But, you know, our, our uh, you know, team cohesion and stuff and, and strategy can only carry you so far because in the end it, it does come down to personal experience as well. And if you're trying to hold a side or you're trying to do a 1v1 and that person on the other team has so much more experience than you, you know, you're very unlikely to win that situation. Right. How much time, I'm curious, so when did you first go into semi-pro and then how many, you know, over the course of all that, how many years was that? So I guess I was playing in, in top-ish leagues in Battlefield 2 in, in around 2009, 2008 kind of time. Okay. Um, and then I ran that Counter-Strike Source tournament in 2010, which was around when Battlefield Bad Company 2 was released. And then CSGO, I think the beta came out in around, I think it was around my birthday-ish time around October 31, um, 2017, 2015 maybe it was, I think actually. I'm going to have to do a fact check on that. I'm sure someone's listening to this podcast screaming uh, at their phone right now. <laughs> um, but, you know, around that kind of time. And for me, I I quote-unquote quit um, quit CSGO, uh, I think it was around. Sorry, the game must have come out. The game must have come out at the end of 2012, and I think I quit around Feb 2013, kind of professional, and then started okay. to coach some lower teams and play, but not as seriously, um, and then kind of stop after that. So you were you were a player for a couple of years then? In yeah, exactly. Games. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'd say I'd say CS:GO is the only game that I really dedicated myself to as a, you know, as a professional. One that I really, mm-hmm. you know, there was definitely I was definitely trying a lot in Bad Company too, but it wasn't. It wasn't the same kind of aspect. It's kind of like when you go from high school to university. You know, you might think that you're trying in high school, but it's just different. The the way that you study in university, the way that you use your tools to your you know most effective advantage, and maybe employ someone and pay them cash to train you, and you know things like that. It's a very different way of thinking. Much much more professionalism. Mm-hmm. And so you then, I believe you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but after playing as a player, that's when you transitioned then to the commentary side. Is that right? So kind of. It's hard to explain my timeline because I kind of did a lot of this at the same time. You know, I okay. started commentating around 2009, 2010 time. You know, I ran the tournament in 2010 and joined Thermal Take in, in um, 2011 from January. So I was playing during that time as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of a bit of a, bit of a bit of a fuzzy timeline and a lot of it really, <laughs> like, switched over. And, and that's, you know, that's why I started running tournaments. For me as a as a player, like I said, we didn't have that experience and we didn't have that experience live at events. And playing at a LAN is so different than playing at home. Even the mm-hmm. fact that you're in a different environment, the monitor might be a different size, it's a different distance away from you, the bench is a different size or height or width, um, you know, your chair you're sitting in is different. You know, even those kind of things really matter if you're not used to that, you're used to the comfort and and the your singularity of your own setup. So I said, hey, there's not enough live tournaments to play in. CSGO was quite frankly a terrible game on launch. And it's gotten much, much better since then. And I said, hey, someone needs to run some tournaments for this. Why not me? So, you know, I ran my first tournament. I think it had three teams. You know, I ran my second, it had eight. And then everyone up to, I think I ran six in total. Everyone after that had 16 teams as a whole. So I played in them when I was a player and ran them at the same time. Or when I stopped being a player, I would commentate them and run them at the same time. 
And what was it like? So being you obviously were able to sit on the competitive side, but then as a commentator, you know, what was that like switching from being on the competitive side to now kind of as a spectator analyzer what while commenting on the gameplay? Yeah, it does. It definitely gives you, you know, a lens to see things in a different way. I think in Australia, especially at that time, there wasn't really anybody who was one of those hype casters. So that was generally me. So I would often try to get a, you know, a player and kind of bounce off them. And I'll be the person calling the, you know, this person kills this person and that kind of stuff and try to give a little bit on the fly. But then, you know, rely on that player mid rounds after rounds to say, hey, mate, you know, if you're in this situation and it was, you know, and it's, and it's, uh, 13 two half and now you're about to lose the pistol around what would you do and ask for that experience but able to able to weigh in on that on myself i was a i was a pretty vocal player um you know one of the loudest in my team and functioning as a support rifle which meant i would often you know take the death or i would be the one throwing the grenades and not getting the most kills and you know i tried to take that across into um you know into commentary as well trying to uplift other people but also being quite loud and, and in charge myself when you know the action was thrown down right and so one of the questions I had, but I guess I, I think I kind of answered then is how much time did it go to preparing and to being a commentator? But I guess since you sat on the player side, you already had a lot of context on the other teams and the other players and kind of the research that maybe if you weren't a player, you would have had to have looked into a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And it, it goes the same way for me that people ask, you know, hey, Chris, how do you prepare for a live speech or a keynote or even, you know, talking with KPMG last week? Um, was talking about one of our services that, that we provide and, you know, how I met my, my current partners in Placehead Studios was doing um, kind of a talk about a half-day seminar on the ecosystem of esports. And the KPMG guy got it as he asked me the question. He's like, oh, how long does it take you to prepare for that? And he's like, wait a minute, you've probably done this 30 times and you probably have a document that you roll out every single time. And I go, exactly. <laughs> and it was the same for, you know, CSGO. And I like to – I'm fortunate enough to be in that position where I do enough study beforehand that I basically don't have to do anything else on top that when I go to do a talk, I'll often do my PowerPoint the morning of or the 30 minutes before I go up. And that's, that's not uncommon for me. And that's not, you know, it's not necessarily me being unprepared. It's, it's just me being the fact that I know my subject matter so well, and that's why I'm comfortable on stage. And that's why I'm comfortable talking about it. And I wouldn't have it any other way. You know, I don't like to take notes. Um, and I was in air force cadets for, for six years and, you know, became a, an instructor throughout, you know, teaching younger cadets a lot of that time. And I found out through that period that taking notes made me a lot worse because I'll get much more caught up in what was written in front of me than actually reading the room and telling people the knowledge, you know, based off a PowerPoint slide behind me, which has a maximum of, of six words by six lines. That was the military goal at, at that stage. Yeah, no, it's always interesting to see what di people's different learning styles are or their style for even preparing, um, I know myself too. Sometimes I'll do a lot of research prior and, you know, I try, I try not to be too scripted or have like a super detailed PowerPoint or anything like that if I'm doing that, because then it just, it doesn't feel authentic to me in my opinion, but uh, it's always <laughs> interesting to see how, how people's different personal, you know, styles are. Yeah. Then so I want to switch then now or transition a little bit into, into big esports, And I think this was where we'll definitely spend a lot of our time for the remainder of the episode. But to set the stage for it, when you started Big Esports, something I thought that would be interesting to hear about is what did the landscape for the industry look like in Australia at that point as far as maybe other companies or businesses that were doing something similar to you? You know, were there competitors? Were you kind of the only one? Or what did it look like at that point in time? Mm -hmm, sure. So, you know, I think at that stage we didn't really have a direct competitor and we still don't. 
in in the local markets because we we do a little bit of everything so to you know f- for me i started doing some consultancy um you know during the tail end of when i was at corsair i, I did a um esports entry strategy with fox sports in australia um kind of going over some different verticals and doing quite a long piece of work with them which involves an all-day meeting which is actually pretty good by the way if anyone's ever thought about that before <laughs> we started with uh we started with a 10 a.m coffee and i think we finished at 4 30 p.m including lunch you know kind of talking work the whole way through and it was very brain draining but it was a very interesting experience for me and i'm, I'm glad i had the opportunity to do that um but yeah look i think for, for me like as i said in a lot of the content recently is that while we're called big esports a lot of our work in the tw- last 12 months has been with influencers um, and that's due to the <clears throat> the nature of the esports market, where it's at, and the opportunity to make money right now with influencers as the esports market matures. We made the mistake, like many other people do in the past, of being hyper focused on esports and trying to build slash grow the industry while we work in it. And it's just too hard of a task. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's trying to explain to people that it's not that you go into agriculture technology, which is a big thing here in Australia, lots of lots of farming and and you know of both animal and and plant products and um you know you can go into that market and you can say to your investors hey guys you know invest three million usd into me at you know at a seven million dollar valuation of a company as a, as a seed investment and we're going to take one percent of the industry and that's going to net us you know 500 million dollars revenue per year it's not like that in esports that i think the thing that a lot of people don't understand about esports is yes it's growing exponentially yes it's big but still it is one percent of the global gaming market and the whole market is a billion dollars you know the goal of many startups is to create a unicorn is to create a billion dollar company right Mm -hmm. but the whole market is a billion dollars and you can't be every single publisher (laughs) tournament operator provider you know nuts and bolts manufacturer you can't be stream hatch at the same time you're the hltv.org at the same time you're cloud nine and esl it's impossible. Right. You can't do that many things as a company and companies who do often fail and die, right? You need to specialize in one thing or at least a market segment. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, you know, a lot of the opportunities there with influencers and I, I shared some stuff on my LinkedIn the other day and I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, influencer spend itself is billions of dollars as far as the whole industry goes. But, you know, I know the spend within gaming is quite large. So for us, you know, we definitely still do have our roots in esports, and we're still doing some projects right now in that section. But there's a lot of money to be made right now. And if you're like us and you're looking towards the future, the easiest thing to do to position yourself well in the esports market is to stay alive and stay afloat. And this is why esports teams are raising capital all the time and still spending lots. This is what happens in, you know, I guess Uber and Snapchat and Spotify, et cetera, all these startups mm-hmm. that are big within their markets, but they're losing money because they know that you know the tunnel is the lights at the end of the tunnel and something's coming along and as that esports market grows you know we're having more and more interest coming through to us now for that consultancy and such but we don't have to push uphill and i spent i spent probably a year and a half of my life trying to sell things to people that i didn't really want to buy um and that's not where you know that's not where a successful company comes from either you know reaching out to people saying hey you need esports and they go i don't really want it you go yeah but you really do need it and then it takes you six to eight months to get to a no and at that stage you're paying the salaries of you know maybe yourself and maybe three other staff um to kind of do the same thing and you just kind of go around in circles for ages and you know what we did with um with the ceo of of place studios jerry is you know he he said well why don't you just follow the money let's take a look at where you've made your money and this was uh, I think I think maybe near the end of maybe halfway through 2019 or somewhere like that, you know, we looked at the financials and without even trying it, we made most of our money in influencer work. 
And we said, well, why don't we stay true to our roots? And, you know, Chris, you keep creating content on esports. You know, we keep, um, you know, taking meetings about it, keep talking to all of the esports team owners. You know, I talked to teams from Team OG, the Dota 2 team, to, you know, FaZe Clan CRO have built a relationship with. But mm-hmm. to really, you know, make some money now for the business and see where those blue sky opportunities hold, see where that scalable digital asset comes from as things go in the future. Because I, I feel right now that a lot of people are, raising money just to see and then throwing money at things just to see maybe what will happen where i'm i'm more of a a sit and wait kind of guy i don't want to just come up and i was talking about this i'm I'm planning a a large tournament um, with some people at the moment or have you know a a large a possibility to create a large you know stadium sized tournament and you know doing some consultancy with him yesterday saying look i don't want to I don't want to throw 50 million bucks at a let's see or 50 million dollars at a hey this is a cool idea we just came up with you know, let's spend $5,000 on researching first. Let's do some polls, mm-hmm. um, pay some influencers to tweet out some polls, you know, maybe do some Google ads. Hey, can you come and answer this questionnaire? <laughs> this kind of stuff too. <laughs> and, you know, trying to get around some of that hype of the esports market. And I feel like I have a pretty good lens for that because I'm involved with, you know, so many things from our founders pitch series where, you know, every two weeks founders will pitch for, for capital and advice and a live show kind of Shark Tank style to, you know, doing my my podcasts and you know going to all of these live events in person intel extreme masters melbourne esports open and packs and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff that you know i'm well positioned to find the right thing but you know the market's going through just a little bit of turbulence at the moment and, and you know there's obviously all this coronavirus and this kind of stuff too so yeah just wait for the dust to settle but i think you know the power for me is very similar to what i talked in content with aeg about is they said you know, that they bought a franchise league spot in Call of Duty and, and Overwatch and they have a CSGO team and MIBR and they were like, look, we have enough money and enough means to ride this out for 10 years and we're going to ride out the peaks and troughs. And that's kind of where I'm sitting at the moment. And I've, I've been, I've been, you know, in that place before as, as many startups are where you're like, shit, I need some revenue. Like yeah. we, we've had months, we've booked, we had months in the past where we booked $0 revenue. You know, I think maybe December 2018 might have been the last time where we booked like zero dollars revenue in that month. And it feels terrible because also you're paying salaries. You know, at that stage, I had two guys working under me. And it's yeah. like, man, I've just paid, you know, however much you burn is, you know, at a small startup, often 10, 15, 20K. Let's say it's 20K. You know, you said, man, I just paid 20K out and I got zero in. Like, right. what do I have to show for this month? And you, it gets you really down and it can. And, you know, rightfully or rightfully so. But, you know, I think if you can if you can weather the storm and bear the market and, you know, cash flow is king and, you know, all these kind of other, I'm sure Gary Vee said all these quotes before, um, <laughs> you're, in a, you're in a good position to take advantage of whatever comes to you. And that's that's what's happening to us now. And I'm, I'm not a patient guy and I've been really kind of, you know, looking in the mirror and slap myself in the face over many, many months saying, Chris, be patient, Chris, be patient. But now the opportunities are starting to come to us. Now the people are knocking on our door saying, hey, Chris, I've got this great idea. Can you please help me? Um, you know, so you've, you've got to weather that storm. And, and after a while, it starts to come to you and understand that, you know, and I've, I've had that same feeling that so many content creators do where I do that stupid thing where I look at how many people are watching me on LinkedIn Live. I yeah. wish you could turn that off because you can on OBS <laughs> if you're a streamer. So if stream like, um, you know, if, if um, StreamYard's listening right now, you know, because I pay for their process, please allow me to turn that off. That would be fantastic. Um, <laughs> you and, you know, looking at my LinkedIn and going, shit, you know, my views are down for the last 90 days. Um, yeah. But, you know, it all, it all comes back around and, you know, creating that quality, engaging content. And while I don't have as many followers as Gary Vee, 
you know, I feel like for me, at least my followers are very well concentrated within a specific industry where I'm sure Gary Vee is followed by anyone from solar panel salesman to, you know, Amazon, Amazon affiliate salespeople to, you know, CEO of Coca-Cola. I'm sure all follow yeah, him, which is a very wide, broad niche. But for me, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, as I say in, with many podcasts and with many online courses is niche down. And once you think you've niche down, niche down again, or niches, I think they call it in the US. Yes. Yeah, no, a lot of interesting things you just brought up. I can definitely relate with you that I too am not a patient person and it's it's definitely something that I try to work on every day because um, I understand the importance of it, but it's definitely not something that came naturally to me. But yeah. what I thought was really interesting and I've had this similar conversation when you were talking about the revenue inflow, right? Because obviously at the end of the day, you are running a business and you have to, to like you're saying, to stay afloat, you do have to do some of the stuff that you know, maybe you want to be more in esports, but at the end of the day, you have to keep the business running. And maybe that comes from, you know, for you guys, maybe working for influencers. And it's interesting. I actually have someone that I'm closely connected to in London and he sits on the insurance side and he's in that similar boat where he had this background in insurance a couple of years ago. He started an insurance agency where he wanted to focus it on gaming and esports. And they're doing very well on the publisher and developer side, but on esports, they're still having a bit of difficulty gaining traction and stuff. And so, you know, we've been keeping up and he has a lot of that similar conversation with me where he's like, you know, I want to do more in esports and we want to work more with teams and players, but there just isn't as much interest for that right now in the insurance space, whereas on the developer side, they are there is. So he's like, you know, that's kind of where we're doubling down right now. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, you know, I think it's a it's a super I mean, sometimes, you know, the, the people who are smart in business say the most stupidly simple things and that make sense. And, I, you know, give Jerry a lot of credit for that when sitting in a board meeting. And he was like, just look at where your revenue is coming from and just do more of that. And I mean, it's such a, it's such an obvious <laughs> answer. Right. Right, you go, right. You know, like imagine imagine you talk to some 13 year old kid and you say hey you know one day you're going to a, you're going to run a massive multi-billion dollar company you're going to approve this guy to sit on your board he's got gray hair and you're going to pay him three hundred thousand dollars a year to literally sit there and say one thing and you're going to go that sounds stupid and to anyone who doesn't work in that sense it's like board members board members sound ridiculous you're like you get you get paid two hundred thousand dollars to rock up for four meetings a year that is stupid but <laughs> It's all about the value they bring, right? And it's when someone like Jerry can say that that one thing and you go, holy crap, <laughs> like that just right. makes so much sense. And that's that's why that person is there. And that's why they, you know, provide that kind of value. And I think for for anyone who's new to, um, to board meetings and to companies, I really can't remember which piece of content that I did. It was, it, sorry, it was a question. It was a question. So I went to the Australian Computer Society's Reimagination 19 event. So the ACS is like a 45,000 person, um, not-for-profit member-based society for anyone who works in anything to do with IT and tech here in Australia. And there was a meet, there was a, a stage, um, was invited there by the CEO and was, was sitting there and there was a talk um, that you could input audience questions to. And it was a board meeting chat and it was, mm -hmm. You know, for, it was one startup founder who has like a $100 million startup or something like that. And then, you know, three called quote unquote gray hairs, people who are sitting on boards of very big companies and had a lot of experience in the past. And, you know, asking them questions like, how do you actually like, like, what's your what's your opinion or what's your advice for startups who are going into a board meeting for the first time? Because I remember going into my board meeting for a first time. And they all looked at me like they expected me to know what I was talking about and what I was doing. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> for, so for anyone listening to this, there was a great book and I really need to look up what it is. And I, I guess I'll share it on my LinkedIn when I do find it. But it's about um, it's about like how to run a board meeting. 
And I was okay. just literally walking through the library one day um, and found this book and picked it up and it was fantastic. And for me, you know, as, as someone who came from a lower socioeconomic background growing up in a small place, you know, a small town in, in called Devonport in Tasmania with like 32,000 people, you know, the unemployment rate is huge there. The, the you know, there's, there's lots of problems with drugs and alcohol, especially for youth and things like that too. You know, mm. the, the thought of someone being paid big money to sit on a board to, to do four meetings a year was just absolutely ridiculous to me. But now after reading like a book like that, man, it's hard. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to be a board member sometimes. Um, you know, you're often the first, you can be the first person to take the chop or, you know, you've got to have a lot of pressure on you to come up with great ideas and you only get, you know, a little bit of knowledge across what's happening, you know, a couple of times, a, uh, yeah. a couple of times a year. So yeah, yeah. There's a lot to learn from there. Definitely. Definitely. Well, if you find it, let me know and I'll, I'll definitely shout it out as well for the, anyone that's, you know, possibly listening yeah. and something else I thought you said was interesting is, you know, sometimes it is just the simple, you know, someone says something and it's very simple and you're like, Oh, you know, that makes sense. And I think, I don't know, I think oftentimes we can get very double, you know, so deep in our thoughts of, and not just look at sometimes the clear, easy picture and cause we're so, you know, deep in our thoughts and, and sometimes you just need someone there to kind of just give you that outside perspective and, and the clear picture of just like, you know, you know, it's just this. So, mm. yeah, exactly. Well, I want to go, so let's, you know, I know you touched on the influencer campaign a little bit or some of the influencer campaigns you guys have helped, you know, worked on. And so the first question I had for you as far as that, because I think this is kind of where we have some interesting conversation is, you know, what does it really look like to put together a successful influencer campaign? And on the outside, a lot of times people will, will see the final result or, or, or what's been created. But mm-hmm. on, on your side, when you're sitting there, as much perspective as you can provide, you know, what does that look like to put that together? Mm-hmm. So I think, um, I think a lot of a lot of it to understand about influencer campaigns is is they can be harder than most people think, um, and that's that's due to a multitude of reasons. Sometimes, let's say you're working with a manager, you know they've got to make some decisions, but they've got to defer some of the the choices or decisions to the talent themselves. So that adds an extra level. Sometimes the talent that you're talking with don't have that same level of professionalism or just not the same understanding because they haven't been part of that same world as you, and they're not. You know, they're not interested in certain discussions and such too. So I think that's part of it. Another part that's really important is, you know, us as a sort of agency sitting in the middle and thinking a couple of things. A, whose best intentions do we have in mind? And that depends on who we're representing. So let's say that we're working with EA, which we did to help launch Jedi, the new Jedi game here in Australia last mm-hmm. year around November time. You know, our best intentions are on the side of EA. So it's trying to get them, you know, the lowest price for the most viewership possible. But at the same time, you know, we don't want to screw over any of these content creators because they all talk to each other and also it's not moral. So, you know, let's say that if we find a content creator who doesn't know how to price themselves and we get them to do, you know, 30 hours of streaming for us for $300 or something like that, it's, it's, you know, it's, they're going to start talking to other people. And when they talk to another influencer that gets paid a hundred dollars an hour for the same size, you know, they're not going to likely work with us again. They're going to be angry at us as well as they're going to be angry at EA, of course. So that's right. part of it. But I think, I think one of the hardest parts, honestly, is just the admin It's just keeping up to date with everything. And, you know, I've been looking at different services like this and I can't find any that exist right now, but if you think about it, you know, we work with the clients and, and let's say NVIDIA, so NVIDIA, we do their influencer work here in Australia. Um, and they come to us and say, Chris, we've got this bundle. We've got um, Call of Duty, Advanced Warfare. You get it for free with every 1080 Ti purchase. 
So we want to promote that to through influencers, um, mm-hmm. and we've got a budget of 15k USD, and we want to get 800,000 digital views across everything across YouTube, Twitch, Instagram views, impressions, however, however it happens. And we go, okay. So the first thing we have to do is we have to find the talent. So who's actually the person that should do this? And then B, when we find that person or those five people or 10 people or 15 or more, sometimes it takes 10 people to get to one at the end. Mm-hmm. So if you need five, sometimes it takes 50 to get to five. Um, and then we need to start negotiating with them. Some influencers have great pricing. Some price themselves too low. Some price themselves far too high. How can you guarantee they're going to reach those minimum deliverables how are you going to guarantee they're going to reach those minimum views influencers don't provide a minimum guarantee like other websites will if you're doing a banner advertisement on a general games news website you'll buy a hundred thousand impressions per month and they'll guarantee and they'll always over deliver it's just part of the service they'll always give you 120,000 no matter what because they have mm-hmm. enough views they know that they can rotate you in um, and chuck extra banners in if need be to make that happen so you go through the negotiation process sometimes you get to the end of that but then the client doesn't like them they had a bad experience with them. And this happens sometimes to clients where they say, hey, we don't like that agency. We've worked with them before. They didn't deliver. You know, the talent um, did half the deliverables. The talent, you know, plenty of experiences where talent have done zero deliverables and said, hey, I'm keeping the equipment you're giving me anyway. <laughs> Not a good business decision. Wouldn't recommend, <laughs> but hey, it happens. Um, so once you've gone through that, then it's the tracking process. So let's say that you're working with uh, one talent over a one-month campaign. They're required to do three tweets, three Instagram stories, one Instagram post, you know, mm-hmm. two three-hour streams and three pre-rolls on YouTube videos. That's a lot of deliverables to keep track of. So we need to create something in the back end. For us, we create an Excel document. We link that with the manager, the talent. We link that with the client who often never opens it. It's just a courtesy. And then we link it. You know, we, we obviously have it ourselves that has everything in there that says, hey, um, let's use an example, Angel Melly. She's a talent we've worked with in a video a bunch of times. Hey, Angel Melly, here's the link that has everything on here. So it's, here's your th- three tweets. You know, it says your YouTube, it says your Twitch, et cetera, et cetera. Every time you do it, every time you facilitate one of those, send it, put a link into here or a screenshot, depending on which, which platform it is. And that becomes more difficult too, because we can't publicly track story views. So she has to screenshot it, which creates more work for everyone. Right. And then we can track that live and say, Hey, we're in week two. Um, you didn't make your tweet in week one, which it says here, the date you're supposed to make it, you know, can you please do that for us? Um, mm-hmm. And then we use that to make our reporting easier. So we chuck all of that data into a report, send that off to the client and then the client will approve uh, or, you know, ask for more deliverables if the if the nature isn't met, you know, the, the deliverables aren't met or the viewership isn't met, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then we can get paid. So, and that's that's kind of the, that's kind of the start, right? And <laughs> besides that, you know, for us, what the reason a client would come to us a lot of the time and, and me justifying ourselves as not just being another shit agency, which is a word that I've said to a lot of talent and stuff recently that I'm kind of going to stick with, is clients come to us when the problem is hard. It's hard to Mm -hmm. solve. So let's take a company we work with at the moment, Unicorn. Um, So they're an esports wagering company. So A, automatically, a lot of influencers don't want to promote that. That's fine. It's up to them. B, there's a lot of regulation around that. Can you promote gambling on Twitch? Sometimes. Can you promote gambling on YouTube? Yes, but if it's cryptocurrency-based gambling, website sometimes there are inherent risks with that where youtube can provide you with a strike if it's if it's crypto based gambling mm-hmm. um can you promote yourself in fortnite well the fortnite community guidelines do have a gray area around that 
around an influencer promoting betting or an influencer creating a tournament to promote betting or a competition to promote mm-hmm. betting. Can you work with someone who is part or affiliated in any way with Riot Games? No. So there was an example here in Australia where two guys were part owners of a um, second tier, you know, there's always like the top tier and like the academy tier. They were part owners of an academy tier team and they both did an ad for Crown Bet here in Australia. And they, I think they both got fined. One person was kind of banned for life for a certain period from, um, I think they were both, they were both banned for either a certain period and one was maybe banned for life from working with Riot Games in a, you know, esports capacity, right? Has very, very zero policy around betting, but they've taken an alcohol sponsor. So do with that what you will. Um, so there's all that kind of stuff too. So that's, you know, that's where it comes to it. And then also, you know, trying to work with talent on a lower upfront price, but working with them on commission, where we help them to achieve the highest commission possible, which means us as an agency, we perform better for our client, it means the client often makes more money because they're making more acquisitions and the talent makes more money. So a campaign we're doing right now with with Unicorn, basically the minimums for any of these talent to achieve for us to renew after our trial with them is like 160% on their payment. You know, there's an extra 60% on top of their payment just in commission. So it's mm-hmm. like, guys, if you can, you know, work with us, hopefully, you know, judging by the, the data that we have from some other people, we could help you make up to 10 to 50K in one month on commission. So let's stop, you know, talking back and forward about wanting to get paid $100 per tweet or an extra yeah. you know, amount of money because we want a 45-second pre-roll versus a 40. You know, let's do some work together. And we're paying you up front for your time. You know, that's that's obvious. You know, that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't be paid an only commission in, in every case. But you know, let's let's come to a let's come to a cost comparison here and say how can we just work on so much commission together. Yeah. Well, for first off, that was a great. I mean, I, I don't think I've had anyone walk me through it quite like that, and that was really well put together. So appreciate you kind of walking through. A, I know it's a very fast process. You kind of explained, and I'm sure there's a lot that goes into it, but definitely provided some context. Do you think, and this is a question I've been wondering a little bit, is where do you think we are right now? And if you just want to speak on your experience with when you are doing an influencer campaign, when, when maybe it's a content creator or a streamer, do you think that there's more people that undersell themselves or are there more people that oversell themselves or or what is the commonality that you run into Mm, it's really hard to say um okay it just it just hyper depends like i had this discussion um i think on a piece of linkedin live content i did not too long ago might have been my last might have been my last one that i did um with with a lawyer from new york that works a lot of pro players saying that it's it's crazy to see that from the outside, nothing looks different from these players or these creators. But if you're using esports as an example, often in the past, there's two teams playing in a global tournament against each other in a game like a tier one game like Dota 2 or CSGO, which has no franchises and no salary expectations that are, that are set by the publisher or the tournament or the league, where, you know, one team on one side is, is earning an average of 80 to $200,000 USD per player as a salary. They were flown there in, you know, premium economy and they're staying in a four, four and a half, five star hotel with all transfers and everything look after them. Mm-hmm. The other team is living in a three bedroom team house where there's, you know, two to three of them per room. Um, and they're eating ramen noodles and they're not being, they're not being paid a salary and they will flown there in the most basic economy possible. Um, and, you know, all staying in a hostel together <laughs> and that's, <laughs> You know, and that's definitely something that happens. And there's a story that came out about that with Dota. You know, it was a tier one global Dota team that was eating two meals a day. And one of those meals was a couple boiled eggs because that's all they could afford. Mm. Um, and, you know, they're playing against um, teams like OG who just won two 
you know, 15, one 12, one $15 million prize purse in one go in two TIs um, and a major, you know, which is a million bucks to boot. You know, they're playing against teams like uh, NIP who have their own, they had a McNip and they had their own chocolate bar in Sweden uh, and these kind of things too. So obviously these teams can afford to pay a little bit more than a couple of hard-boiled eggs and, and no salary. And it's the same with content creators. You know, we, we had it. We had a really good cross-section for us internally, and unfortunately I can't share that as a case study um, with the Air Jedi campaign we did, but we're able to use a great cross-reference. We use some big creators, some medium, some small, and we're able to do a great, we're able to do a great cross-section of price across all of them and say, you know, who generated for us, you know, the better amount of views for the, mm-hmm. the right amount of dollars and who generated less. And, you know, we had two channels on there, very similar size. One charged almost 50% more, and delivered almost 30% less in viewership. And that could have been just a bad month for them, could have been a bit of a dip, but you know, that shows you that sometimes, you know, the bigger isn't always better. Right. No, and it's interesting when there are because I've heard with talking with other people where, you know, maybe they have sometimes done someone with that had hundreds of thousands of, of followers on a social media platform and then another one maybe only had, you know, fifty thousand and the smaller community you know, had better numbers just because it was a more tight knit community and they really followed that person a lot heavier. So it's, it's interesting to see, you know, whose communities are stronger or, or who's can really provide better results. Um, on the PR side of that. And, and I think you mentioned this a couple of minutes ago when you were elaborating on everything. So you talked about, I think how sometimes players may not have the per, or players or streamers maybe don't have the, um, professionalism to carry themselves maybe with working with a brand or someone else just given to to do of lack of experience, not because of the person that they are, where do you see, or or do you see streamers and pro players, you know, how are they educating themselves to carry themselves as a professional? A lot of these people maybe are jumping into this at a young age because of their talent or because of their personality and the channels they've built, you know, where do you have any experience seeing of how they are maybe getting mentored or coached to carry themselves in a professional manner? Yeah, the easy answer for me, I think, is it's up to the manager. Um, you know, it's up to the talent to be the talent. It's up to them to be weird, crazy, wacky, if that's their, you know, if that's their kind of content. It's up to them to be engaging and interesting. It's up to them to be accountable to their fans and to make great content. And then it's up to the manager to do everything else. Um, you know, the lines are blurred a bit in this industry and and with any. You know, I'm sure mm-hmm. that I'm sure Drake talks to some of the brands he works with, not just his manager the same way that Michael Jordan would and Shaquille O'Neal and, you know, mm. the same way that anyone, any other Tom Brady would, you know, any current professional player or rapper or influencer in the market, you know, Ninja or PewDiePie, I'm sure he has direct dinners with, you know, the with NZXT, who sponsors Ninja and that kind yeah. of stuff too. So there is some sort of level, but, you know, it's understanding that these guys have a purpose and, you know, maybe that if you're going to teach a Navy SEAL to do a certain thing, maybe that means a Navy SEAL is going to have a certain type of, um, persona about them when they're unleashed in the public the same way that maybe an influencer is you know mm-hmm. you can't expect an influencer to be you know let's say they're like uh jacksepticeye and you know it's very loud and commanding and you know crazy on youtube videos you can't expect to take him out you know to a boardroom lunch and just expect <laughs> him to sit there quiet in the corner and you know yes or no so three bags full like you know you're not you're right. paying him to be crazy and engaging and interesting and, you know, sometimes that is an act for certain influences. I don't know him in person, but you shouldn't be surprised if he's like that in person too. Um, it does make it a little bit harder for players because players have at this stage a much lower um, earning ceiling 
than, Mm -hmm. you know, the influencers do where it's not like that in traditional sports. Um, And, you know, they, they have a much more grim look at life after play that an influencer does as well, as long as an influencer can set themselves up, you know, for the future. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I think that it's up to whoever's managing the person to help set those ex- expectations as well. You know, I had this, I had a great um, thing in the past happen, a great learning experience for, um, you know, a, a business that I worked with who employed an influencer to do a live stream, installing a piece of hardware in a PC and they just chose them because they were kind of uh, interesting, like the hot influencer at the time. Right. But without actually doing any looking to them, to being like, can this person actually handle hardware? The answer was no. And that came through on the stream. Is this person a very professional, astute, straight-backed kind of streamer who's good for a big corporate brands page? No. So if you simply asked yourself those questions before the campaign went ahead, you probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> but unfortunately, <laughs> they did do it. And then they complained about the outs. They complained about the result. And w- it was kind of like, well, what did you expect? Like, you know, do you expect to take Steve-O from Jackass to, you know, next to you in a TEDx talk? Yeah. You expect him not to do something funny? Like his whole thing is hurting himself and being wacky and crazy and interesting and exciting. So you can't expect him to just suddenly just, you know, sit once again, sit in a board meeting and make those kind of decisions. Like that's not what he's about. You know, right. similar, similar with, um, you know, the often controversial Joe Rogan. You know, the same kind of stuff too. I remember listening to a podcast once where he said he doesn't do meetings with Onnit, which he's one of the co-owners of. And I think that for some people it's like, well, that's, that's um, you know, silly or that's lazy because you're a co-owner, you should, you should do the board meetings. But also it's the fact that he probably, A, doesn't care, but B, that's not his job in the company. His job is to promote it and to be the face and the head of it. So mm-hmm. he, as long as his lawyers are looking over what's happening and, you know, he's happy and the, and the company is happy, you know, keep him fit for purpose keep him doing exactly what he's meant to be doing, which is, you know, creating podcasts and promoting his company all the time to be a success. Right. No, it's interesting. The kind of the root of this question that I follow the 2K league fairly closely. I, I try, it's one of the, the leagues that I try to follow a little bit more closely compared to just having general context. But it's interesting because leading up to the NBA 2K draft, which happened last weekend or two weekends ago, there was a lot of players that were apparently just declining, you know, team interviews with with different GMs and coaches. And there was kind of a lot of commotion on Twitter about professionalism and, you know, a lot of guys that were very new to the league, mm. but they were they were talented. And so they had made it through the draft, you know, the NBA combine and all that. But there was a lot of lack on the professional side of just, you know, how to carry themselves with with a, with a team, with interviews and, and things like that. So I don't know. I was kind of interested to, to chat with you. And, and that definitely provided some insight just to see what your experiences have been. So, yeah, and I've, I've been trying to do a lot of content recently. You know, I did one with PPD, current NIP, Dota 2 captain, previous TA winner. I did another podcast with Loader, um, ex-player, um, current coach, and also a TI winner. Um, and then also I did another podcast last week with uh, with a lawyer who represents a lot of talent across Call of Duty, Overwatch, CSGO, et cetera, et cetera. Because I, like I feel like there's a gap between the players and the business people. And I think mm-hmm. rightfully so sometimes. The same way you could say, yeah, of course, like there's a gap between a CEO and a general employee. Like there, right. there needs to be some sort of gap. The CEO can't just go to you know, to the, the sales manager and say, hey, what do you think of this big company decision? This is what's on my mind because it's not fair um, on either side. You know, they don't have all the information. But still, I think that a lot of the time people are making these decisions about players that are actually asking them. And it's a very obvious question that sounds very obvious. But, um, you know, are you talking to the people who your decisions affect? Uh, have you actually asked them for their opinions? 
Um, and are you just saying that they're delusional just because they're asking for something you don't think is realistic, but without actually understanding where they're coming from? And this happens a lot in gaming and esports as a whole. And I think Seth Godin, he released a marketing book recently that I listened to an Audible, which is, you know, a quote from there has been stuck in my mind. And I'll, I'm sure I won't get the quote exactly, but he says that a lot of people these days are worried about their millionth customer and they're not thinking about their first 50. Mm-hmm. You can't get to a million without the first 50. You know, and I and I said this to my girlfriend who's she's going through, um, she's losing a lot of weight at the moment, um, you know, doing very well in the gym and looking to get into powerlifting and she's out squatting and deadlifting me because I have a knee injury at the moment. So it's, it's partly <laughs> killing me inside, but it's partly great because she's doing really well. Yeah, and yeah. You know, she's, she's created a, a project, kind of a project Jess um, Instagram, which is following her you know, following her weight loss journey and, and all this kind of stuff too and what she's doing. Mm-hmm. And you know, she's got like 88 followers or something like that, which is which is a great start. And I said, well, you know, the best way to grow is reach out to those 88 people and say, hey, why do you follow me? Some of those people are liking all of her posts. So she's so she's got at least one super fan now. You know, if there's yeah. one person liking all her posts, so go and ask them and go and say, hey, why do you follow me? Why, what kind of content do you like? What do you want to see? And try to get them to talk to one of their friends to become a super fan of you. And then a friend and another friend, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we all see this happen with Apple where people who are in the ecosystem are often absolute lovers of that. And, you know, once again, back to Jerry, biggest Apple fanboy I've ever seen in my life. He loves it, but he's always recruiting other people, you know, to come and join that kind of thing. So how can yeah. you kind of function, you know, off that start, build those, build those super fans and, and get people in. But, you know, back to the thing, I, I think that there's, yeah, just a big disconnect between the between the players and between the people that are making the decisions for them. And this happened uh, recently in Australia with salaries. You know, salaries kind of got blown out over the past couple of years to where I think they are ridiculous with, yes, that a player should be compensated. And, yes, it did really suck that I worked full-time and played 30 hours a week at the same time. But also you're paid for the value that you bring. And if you've got 300 Twitter followers and the best – thing that you could ever hope to achieve is you know 35th in the world at a tier two esports title like maybe you maybe you shouldn't be paid um six to nine hundred dollars a week you know maybe there's not a business sense in that um and maybe you should just represent no org and just keep going along until you can and you know that's what we did in csgo with with 3h you know we we chose to represent zero orgs because we knew that our best opportunity was getting maybe a free mouse pad and a free server. And we're like, hey, we'd rather just pay for that ourselves and not be beholden to anyone. Right. No, I, I think it's definitely fair that you, you got to get paid for the value that you bring. And and I think a lot of people too, it's interesting, you know, you talk about, you know, I think being a player, you a part of the value, in, in my opinion, is also to the social media platform that you might have. So, you know, if you are a player in a league and and you have a very low social media account, you're not very popular on there, maybe you just don't engage much on there, you know, I think if you're at the same skill level of another player that has, you know, thousands and, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers, I think that player obviously might be able to bring more value, and I think that's just kind of a reality, so. Yeah, exactly. Well, I wanted to jump into the Big Esports podcast real quick, just ask you a couple (laughs) of questions, because I think you guys have done an incredible job with it. It was actually, I, I remember, so I kind of jumped into or started the business management firm um, for esports last June. And I remember that your podcast was actually one of the first things that I started to listen to just to gain a little bit of knowledge and, and kind of educate myself. So I want to talk about it with you real quick. You know, for you, when did you launch the podcast? Was it something that you launched when you created the business? Was it something that came later or before? Or what was the timeline for you just real quick? 
Mm-hmm. Sure. So I think it, it started quite a few years ago when I was still at when I was still at Corsair. I think I kind of was saying, you know, hey, I got a lot of contacts in the industry. Podcasts are becoming a little bit more popular, um, you know, and I'm not really doing any commentary anymore. So how can I put my skills and experience, um, you know, into a into a place where I can learn, I can connect with other people, and, and other people can learn around the same time as well. And it's kind of where it kicked off from. Gotcha. And so when you started it, did, you know, what, what was your vision or goal for it? Did you just, did you know you wanted to be interview style or, or kind of what were your plans? Yeah, it started off as, as a very, um, like as a very structured, you know, I'd have questions that I'd send through to them beforehand. It was very, you know, hey, welcome to the podcast. Here's my intro line, you know, saying this is what the podcast is about every time, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And then it, it kind of devolved from there, I guess you could say, <laughs> into something that I think is better now, you know, doing yeah. the LinkedIn lives. Like we just released a podcast last week with Loader, which was recorded live uh, a few weeks before that on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And I had a great time. It was super relaxed. I had a couple of talking points at most and usually that's just in case I get lost because sometimes I do because I'm just thinking about too many things about what we're discussing right. um, that kind of can bring things back in line or to fill dead air but I had a fantastic time and there were so many questions that I wanted to ask him from a personal point you know right. things and things like what I asked PPD as well from NIP about you know if you kick a player how long does it take for your team to be back to 100% when you get a new one in PPD's answer is about a week doesn't really matter that much as long as they're good um, you know, similar things with Loader. Like, what do you actually think of the international structure? Do you think it's it's bad for Dota? Do you think it's good? You know, how do you feel as a player who's been around for many, many years from the grassroots fighting against these new organizations who come out of nowhere with millions or tens of millions of dollars and you guys are sitting there never taking outside capital and struggling, you know, against that that kind of money weight, you know, talk, mm-hmm. talking about things like that. So I had a great, great time, you know, keeping that conversation. And it is hard to get across to some people um, I had a guest come on once. I think it was the PR agency that represents the AEG um, uh, guy that I had on. Um, and, you know, they, they kept asking for the questions. And I kept saying there are no questions. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> can you please set us through the pre-prepared questions? I'm like, guys, there are no questions. I think they asked three times. I'm yeah. like, there are no questions. Like, here's a general idea of what I'll talk about, which is, you know, what do you think of franchising leagues and what's the history of your company and why do you care about esports? You're so big and esports is small fry mm-hmm. compared to, you know, they own a few stadiums which are worth, you know, 500 to a billion each. Um, so why do you care about an industry that's worth a billion? You know, all that kind of stuff. So we had a great chat. But, yeah, yeah just, just trying to keep things pretty casual and, and go with it. And I think as long as you pick the right guests, and I've started to be very stringent with the guests I pick, which can be hard the same way that I had to be very stringent with the meetings that I take. It can be hard. People do take offense, but hey, that's part of life. Um, In in just saying, look, these people know what they're talking about. They're a senior in their industry or their part or their whatever for a reason. And, you know, I have knowledge through my experience. So let's just be comfortable in that fact. Let's have a chat face to face. And I think, I honestly think I've learned a lot from the Joe Rogan podcast. There was a great YouTube video that I watched, which was something like why Joe Rogan is a bad interviewer. And it's a clickbait title, but it's basically the fact that he goes in purposefully ignorant with most people that he talks to. And he asks questions, like he says, like he often says quotes like, you know, I'm dumb and I'm, I, I feel like an ape, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's perfect because he's asking questions that people actually want to know. He's not right. pretending to be smart. He gets this person on with a, you know, a PhD in astrophysics. And, you know, you could just say, hey, how come when an apple drops, it hurts my, my head? <laughs> you know, and then it sounds right. stupid, but then it's like, well, actually – like that's something I thought of. And obviously, you know, people don't think about exactly that, right? But it's a question that's phrased like that. 
You know, Definitely. it's like, how come, you know, how come cats are so small compared to lions? Like, what the hell happened there? Like asking someone, you know, who's an evolutionary biologist. And they can actually explain that. And someone can go, you know what? I've actually wondered that too. Like, how do you have a lion and a house cat at the same time? And that, right. was, in, that was in one of the podcasts. And we're talking about dogs and the evolution over the years and that kind of stuff too. So, right. yeah, you know, I tried to take a few things. And, you know, I've learned a lot from the Jocko podcast, Jocko Willink. But he's crazy pre-prepared compared to me. Very different style of podcasting. Learned a bit from Sam Harris, who only you know, most of the time podcasts by himself. And you can kind of see my Sam Harris period in the podcast where I started talking a little bit more a little bit more softly and a bit more slowly like this. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think for me, you know, those those kind of things put together with the fact that I'm doing LinkedIn Lives now that are becoming a live and then a podcast, like I think I found my groove in there. Yeah. No, and it's interesting. You, you definitely, you know, speaking on my side, so I started this podcast last August. You know, I'm still very early, and this is only episode 31 with you. And I've already found myself where there's – I don't even know how many things I've changed. You know, it's, it's constantly evolving. It's constantly something where maybe I thought I was going to feel comfortable with it. And I was like, you know what, maybe I actually don't like this as much. Or there have been times where I'm like, okay, this feels too structured, but I want a little bit of structure. And I don't know. It's, it's interesting to see. And it's kind of refreshing to hear from you too, that it seems like you've had, and obviously you've been doing it longer, but that you've kind of had that process where, where things are changing for you and, and you kind of just kind of find your groove. So, mm. um, yeah. Definitely. Well, let's go ahead. I think that kind of wraps everything up. I know we covered a lot and, and we've been going for an hour, but wanted to definitely hop in real quick to wind things down and do the Lodges Light 7. So this is a segment that I do, still do have in the podcast. This is something it's funny that to be honest and, and be authentic. This is something where I, this is a segment that I've actually kind of been considering whether or not to keep in. But for the purposes of this episode, I'm, I'm going to go with it through you because I think it'll be fun. Um, but Chris, just going to ask you seven kind of fun questions. Sure. Uh, so everyone can hear a little or learn a little bit more about you. They're kind of random. But the first one is, who would you say is your favorite superhero? Favorite superhero, man? That is a good question. I don't think I have a direct answer. I like, I do like Spider-Man, maybe maybe because of his personality. He's a bit wacky. He's a bit childish. Um, yeah. yeah. And he can, you know, he can swing through revs. That's always pretty exciting. But I think that a lot of the time too, his superpowers almost seem like the worst compared to any others because I'd much <laughs> rather be able to like time travel or fly or, you know, jump into space or, or things yeah. like that too. So it comes, you know, it comes with both sides. An interesting personality, but not the best powers. Definitely. Would you say that you are a morning person? Yeah, I'd say I've kind of taught myself to be a bit of a morning person over a long period of time. You know, like I alluded to before, I was in cadets for six years and, you know, as a higher rank, you know, Reveille, which is when you have to wake up, everyone is, is around 6 a.m. So I'd have to wake up at, you know, 5 to, you know, get have a shower, get dressed, which takes, you know, 10 minutes in itself to do up your boots and your tie properly and all this kind of stuff too. And I was never a morning person through all that. And I still don't <laughs> like making my bed. So it's not true that, you know, joining the military or cadets forces you to like waking up early and that kind of stuff. But, you know, getting into business a lot more myself and wanting to beat the traffic, you know, becoming a bit more of a morning person, but I'm definitely more productive at, at nighttime. Awesome. That's funny. Would you say that you'd rather explore the deep sea or outer space? Outer space for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what, what would you say is your favorite beverage? You know, coffee, regular drink, favorite. alcoholic drink, whatever whatever is your taste. Can't go past a good Pepsi Max. Don't okay. mind a good Pepsi Max. And, and some water. I think pretty much no one in this day and age drinks enough water. Yeah, I would agree with that. Question five is what would you say is your most used social media? 
most of your social media these days is is probably LinkedIn as far as activity of me posting goes. But you know, being on it quite a lot is Facebook. You know, I, I talk to a lot of people in the industry, family, and, and my girlfriend through Facebook Messenger. So I've got Facebook open because of that. Okay, interesting. And then question six: Would you say that you prefer hard tacos or soft tacos? Oh man, it used to be hard tacos until I knew that soft tacos was a thing. And then ever since then, it's been burritos or soft tacos every time. <laughs> I'm the same way. I'm a soft taco guy. And the last question to wrap it up is what would you say is your favorite video game of all time? It had to be Battlefield 2. Um, and it's due to memories. You know, it was not a great game. Um, there was a lot of hit registration issues where you could knife someone four times, dust would come off and they wouldn't die. You could shoot them in the head, they wouldn't die due to stupid hitboxes. Um, there were some patches which apparently meant that if you drove over a pothole in a tank, it could explode. There was crashes to desktop where you could pick up a, a dead person's kit, which means you kind of pick up all their ammo and their, and their grenades. You could just crash the desktop immediately. Um, there are a lot of problems. Uh, you know, when, when uh, computers weren't as fast, it used to take two full minutes to load into a map a full minute to load and then a full minute to like verify game cache or whatever it was called. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I got a tattoo of the game logo on my leg. My best mate has a tattoo on his arm. Um, you know, it's his best man uh, just over a year ago now at his wedding. Um, and we kind of got to show off those tattoos together, which was awesome. But <laughs> it's the, you know, it was a game that I used to go to his place at five o'clock after work, 5.30, play nonstop until 7 a.m. until literally my brain couldn't process things anymore. I would play until I was just such a bad player due to fatigue and, and um, yeah. you know, whatever else that, that I just simply couldn't function. Go to sleep, wake up at 1 p.m., play till 6, drive home. Um, nice. So, you know, I've never had a game that's captured me as much before or after that where I could just keep playing and playing and playing nonstop. Right, right. Yeah, no, definitely. We've all had one of those. It's interesting. Mm. Well, that's a lot of light seven. Appreciate you going through that. And really just thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about all the different talking points we had, walking us through big esports, the podcast, your different experiences and, and really all the different roles that you've had the opportunity to be a part of. Really enjoyed listening to it and, and learning about it. Where can anyone who's listening find you on social media? Sure. So for me, it's just at Smithy Mayo on all platforms, Smithy being my last name, Smith and Mayo being my gaming name. Um, and then also for big esports at big esports underscore GG on, on all platforms as well. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Chris, thank you. Um, if, and, and for you guys listening on Apple podcast, his socials will be linked in there. So if you just want to click on there and, and go to his stuff, but Appreciate everyone tuning in and listening. If you were a new listener, I really hope you guys enjoyed it. If you're a returning listener, thank you guys for coming back and checking it out. And we'll see you next week for another episode. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating if you've enjoyed this. You can find out more about Lodges by searching on Instagram at Lodges underscore financial, on Twitter at Lodges, on eFuse at Lodges, and on LinkedIn by searching for my name, Juan Rodriguez, J-U-A-N. Following on socials is the best way to be kept up to date with podcast updates and information. Thanks, and you were just listening to The Lodges Podcast.